Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you today. And for the next several weeks, we're going to study one of Jesus' most famous teachings. Uh, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount, and it's found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So if you have a Bible handy, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we'll spend our time today. And uh, as you're finding that, just a fun fact, when my wife and I were in college, we had to put these words to memory. We had to write out the entire Sermon on the Mount from memory, and every misplaced or misspelled word was another point off. In fact, if we even missed a comma or a small punctuation of, of some sort, that was a point off. But you know what? Surprisingly, uh, it wasn't that hard. And I remember getting a pretty decent grade on the assignment, three whole chapters of the Bible from memory. Now I can't even remember my own phone number. And I know that some of you are with me on that one. Well, we're not going to make you memorize the Sermon on the Mount, but we are going to spend the next several weeks looking at several of the teachings within it. Now, it's called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus literally taught this from the side of a mountain. It was a, a sloping, grassy hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And just like at our outdoor services, which are happening at 10 a.m. at both of our campuses, everyone in attendance was seated on the lawn. And Matthew tells us at the beginning of chapter 5 that it was a large crowd of people uh, who were there to listen to this teaching. There were men and women and children who had been following Jesus and uh, had observed his miracles. They had heard his teachings before, and so they had come to listen to Jesus teach. But it's important to note that Jesus wasn't necessarily speaking to everyone who was following him that day. No, he was speaking specifically to those who were committed to being his his disciples. Because in this sermon, Jesus is going to teach them what it means to be a disciple. And that's why this teaching is still so relevant for us today. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are his disciple. And these words are as much for you as they were for those listening 2,000 years ago. The principles found in the Sermon on the Mount still teach us today what Jesus expects of anyone who would take his name, uh, anyone who would call themselves a Christian. Well, today we're going to focus on just four verses found in chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel, verses 13 through 16. And I want to read that entire section, and then we'll work through it to understand what Jesus was teaching. Here's what Jesus says about his disciples, starting in verse 13. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Hey, I'm just curious. Uh, how many of you have salt in your home? I imagine uh, everyone online is raising their hand right now. I, I bet all of us have salt in our homes. How about light? How many of you have a lamp of some sort in your home? Again, it's everyone, right? These are two items that all of us have and use on a daily basis. And that was true in Jesus' day as well. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. He's using illustrations that he knows everyone can relate to. These are things that are useful and even essential to everyday life. 
And I want you to think with me for just a minute about the, the Christians you know, people who would say that they are followers of Jesus Christ, are useful and essential words you would use to describe them. Are those words that others would use to describe you? Because what Jesus is teaching by using salt and light as metaphors is that his disciples have a significant role to play. So let's look at, at each of these metaphors one at a time. Uh, Jesus starts by saying in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And a few things likely came to mind for his audience as he used this illustration. The first isn't as obvious to us as it would have been uh, to that first audience. That's because if you or I need salt, we can just run down to the store and pick some up. It's relatively inexpensive. Uh, it's extremely available. That wasn't the case in the first century. In fact, in Jesus's day, salt was a valuable commodity. It was often traded for other goods and even used as currency. Roman soldiers were often paid for their work with salt. And that's where we find the phrase, he's worth his salt. And so in calling his disciples the salt of the earth, Jesus is teaching that they hold great value. Jesus' disciples hold great value. He intentionally chose something valuable to compare his disciples to. And the fact that their value comes from God, from being his creation and his workmanship, means that there won't ever be a day when he changes his mind about this. As a disciple of Jesus, you are a valuable commodity to God and to his kingdom. And you have an important role to play. You may not feel like it, your circumstances may think you to, to cause you to think otherwise, but Jesus himself reinforces this truth by using the, the illustration of salt. Now, part of salt's value comes from the fact that, that it's used to preserve things. Salt has a preserving quality. With modern refrigera refrigeration, this is, has become almost unnecessary. In fact, about this time of year, every year, uh, my family buys a fourth of a cow. And we can do that because we've got a deep freezer in our garage where we store all of that meat until we need it. But think about what it would have been like in the first century to butcher a cow. You'd have about 500 pounds of beef all at one time and no way to refrigerate it. And if you don't do something quick, it doesn't take long for bacteria to begin to form and, and decay starts and the meat will spoil. But salt slows that decaying process. And so when meat was butchered, it was, it was coated with a layer of salt, which would preserve it, and it would ward off bacteria, and it would slow the decaying process. And there's a sense in which, a sense in which this is the role that Christ's disciples play. Just as Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, we should be on that same mission because Jesus' disciples have a preserving influence on others. Here at Genesis, our mission is helping people find their way back to God. That comes right out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is, is talking about being ambassadors for Christ here on earth. And he says, it's as if Christ is, is pleading through us uh, on others' behalf, come back to God, be reconciled to God. We want to see the lives of others preserved, just as ours have been preserved in Christ. That's what salt does. It preserves. And because of that, it's of great value. One more thing that salt is good for, and this one still definitely applies today. Salt tastes really good. And uh, salt makes other things taste better than they would have otherwise. Last week, we pulled some of our beef out of the freezer and, uh, and we put it on the grill. And when I grill steak, 
I only use two things. I use coarse salt and fresh ground pepper. That's all it needs. And honestly, if we're out of pepper, uh, that'd be disappointing, but we would still grill. But if we're out of salt, we're canceling the barbecue. Because without that salt, it just wouldn't be the same, right? The meat wouldn't taste right. You would notice the difference. You would wish it was on there. Salt has a way of making things more palatable. And that's what disciples of Jesus should be like as well. Jesus' disciples make the world a more palatable place. There should be a quality to us that we make things better. We seek to help. We seek to benefit others. I once heard someone ask the question, if your church no longer existed, would anyone notice? Like if one day your church just disappeared, would anyone notice? Would anyone care? And that should mess with us a little bit, but let me ask it another way. If you moved out of your neighborhood, would anyone notice? If you changed schools, would anyone be sad about that? Or if you switched jobs, would people be like, man, I hate to see that guy go. I hate to see her leave. You know, she was always so kind. He was always so willing to serve, so loving and so caring. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. We make the world a more palatable place. But Jesus goes on and, and he says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And I have to admit that before studying for this message, I never really understood what that meant. Uh, I, I've never experienced salt that has lost its saltiness. That has never happened to me. Uh, I've never had salt that wasn't salty. But in studying for this message, I found that uh, that most salt in the ancient world was farmed from salt marshes as opposed to, to being, uh, being farmed from evaporating salt water. And the salt that comes out of a salt marsh, it, it comes with a lot of con contaminants and a lot of impurities. And D.A. Carson points out in his commentary that, that the actual salt is more soluble than the impurities. And so it can be leached out, leaving behind just a, a clump of residue and all of uh, the impurities that are of little worth. That leftover pile of residue is likely what Jesus was referencing here when he says the salt has lost its saltiness. What, what's left is, is just good for being thrown out. It's only good for being trampled on. It's also interesting to note that the Greek word used here for losing saltiness can also be translated as to become foolish or to become moronic. In other words, Jesus is saying, as my followers, you are meant to be the salt of the earth. And so if you call yourself a Christian, but you lack the quality of saltiness, like there's nothing beneficial, there's no preserving quality, you know, nothing desirable. It's foolishness to say, I'm a Christian, but not to display these things. It's, it's moronic. And so Jesus finishes his thought by saying that salt, which loses its saltiness, is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And any time that Jesus talks about something or someone being thrown out, you can know that's not a good thing. As followers of Jesus, losing our saltiness is a really big deal. So we have to be intentional about this, about finding our identity and our value in Christ, about being a preserving influence on those around us and sharing the incredible flavor of God with everyone we come in contact with. Now in verse 14, Jesus is going to switch gears. Uh, he's gonna switch the illustration, switch the metaphor, and he says this. He says, you are the light of the world. 
Now, it's the second metaphor he uses for his disciples, but it's also a title that Jesus gives himself in John chapter 8 and John chapter 9, where he says, I am the light of the world. So for Jesus to call his disciples by the same title is both an incredible honor, but also an incredible responsibility that we would need to carry on Christ's work and his message to carry his light into dark places. He goes on to say, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And it's interesting to note that from the hillside where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, you could see the city of Safet built on top of a large, prominent mountain and visible from a great distance away. And in the same way, Jesus wants his disciples to live visible lives. That's why he goes on in verse 15 saying, Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Listen, so many Christians seem to have this idea that their faith is is a private matter. It's something personal to me. It's private. It never needs to come out. It doesn't have to change the way I think, the way I talk, the way I treat people. It's just my own personal, private faith. That kind of thinking is what Christ would describe as a lamp under a bowl. Who would do that? Again, it's, it's foolish to even think about. It, it's, a, it's a foolish, moronic illustration, a light under a bowl. And the idea that, that you could be a, a secret Christian is found nowhere in the New Testament. And I'm not saying that there aren't parts of the world where our brothers and sisters in Christ don't have to be very careful about how and when and where they express their faith. But I would also venture to say that in those places and in those situations, their lights are, are shining far brighter than ours here in the West. And it's crazy to think that in a country like America, where we have absolute freedom to speak the name of Christ, that so many times we refuse to do so because of what people might think. And I don't want people to to think I'm a freak and, and I don't want to look like those people. And so I just put my light under a bull and nobody needs to know. Again, it's foolishness. It's moronic. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, Christ never contemplated the production of secret Christians, Christians whose virtues would never be displayed, pilgrims who would travel to heaven by night and never be seen by their fellow pilgrims or anyone else. What do Jesus' disciples do instead? We put our light up on a stand. We put it as high as we can get it to give light to as many places and as many people as possible. Verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, it's interesting to note that just one chapter further in Matthew's gospel, uh, and in this same sermon, Jesus is going to condemn doing acts of righteousness before men uh, for them to see those and, and then to praise you. But it's not the righteous acts themselves that are condemned. In fact, here in verse 16, Jesus plainly states that they may see your good deeds. So do good things and let people see you doing good things, but not so they will see how good you are, but rather so they will see how good God is and then glorify him. The point of being salt and light in the world isn't that people would be attracted to us. It's that they would be attracted to Christ. One more thing before we wrap up today, and and here's the big takeaway from this passage. Jesus never challenged us to become salt and light. He said we are salt and light. 
And we are either fulfilling or failing at that responsibility. And as disciples of Jesus, our motivation for fulfilling that responsibility is the fact that this is exactly what Christ has done for us. Christ himself became the salt of the earth for us. He who is of infinite value left his rightful place in heaven, was born as a man and spent his life healing and helping and loving and making this world a more palatable place for everyone he came in contact with. And then he laid his life down so that your life and mine might be preserved on the day of judgment that is to come. And Jesus is the light of the world. He has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. His sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his life-giving resurrection mean that our story doesn't have to end in eternal darkness. In fact, your story can be rewritten today. The scriptures say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When you repent of your sins, he will forgive you. He will give you a new purpose and a new life, and that can happen today. In fact, if you're ready to surrender your life to Christ today, I wonder if you would close your eyes and bow your heads and just pray this simple prayer with me. You can pray something like this. Father God, I recognize that you sent your son Jesus to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world, to show us the right way to live, and then to lay down his perfect life as a sacrifice for my sins. And God, I confess that I am a sinner in need of your grace. But I thank you for Jesus, whose death has paid the penalty for all of my sins. And I wanna live differently from this day forward. I wanna repent of the way I used to live, and I wanna walk as Jesus walked from here on out. God, I love you. I thank you for giving me the gift of your son. And it's his name I pray, amen. And if you prayed something like that today, I wanna welcome you to the family of God. And uh, we are so excited that you would make that kind of a decision. I wanna encourage you again to tell you that the Christian life is not something to be lived in secret. And so your next step is to let us know that you made a decision to follow Christ today or to let someone who you're close with who is also a Christ follower, let them know. We wanna walk alongside of you and help you in this journey of knowing and loving Christ and, and loving God and loving people. But for those of us who have already experienced the salt and the light of Christ, I just wanna close with this thought. How selfish would it be for us to simply live private, secret lives? and to keep the salt and the light of Christ to ourselves. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So let's take that responsibility seriously. Let's be faithful just as Christ was faithful to us. We're gonna take some time today to remember Christ's faithfulness through communion. And maybe you have some of the elements that you've picked up from your campus. Maybe you have juice and some crackers there at home. I wanna encourage you to get those, uh, to get those out as we move through this time together. But we know on the night that Jesus would be betrayed that he had one final meal with his disciples. And at that meal, Jesus took two of those items and gave them new significance. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this represents my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this represents my blood poured out for you. 
And when you eat the bread and when you drink the cup, I want you to remember me. I want to invite you now to take those elements and to remember the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you, and the high responsibility that he has given us of being the salt of the earth, the light of the world, just as Christ was that for us.